I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, Hearing God. Just about everyone wants to hear from God, but some of us have no idea how to go about it or to confirm whether or not it's happened at all. Is there any foundational, infallible way to seek, hear, and recognize the voice of God? I was reading this week about the Buddhist monk Hua Chi. He's said to have spent decades, apparently, returning to the same exact spot in the same exact temple to pray the exact same way until apparently he left footprints right in the wooden floor. It's like a, it looks like somebody couldn't have carved them there on purpose if they tried. Check this out. And yes, this is the highest resolution video I could find. Wow, look at that. Footprints in the floor. So unwavering was his devotion to some connection with the divine. Haji Ali was an Indian Muslim who was said to have spent 40 years in prayer. His tomb in Mumbai is now a pilgrimage site for Muslims all around the world. St. Simeon was a 5th century Syrian monk who spent... 37 years living on top of a platform on a pillar as he prayed and fasted. He survived apparently on bread and goat's milk offered by villagers who would climb the column and offer him food. This gilded plaque depicts both the temptation to abandon his life of prayer, that's the serpent, and a scallop shell symbolizing connection with God. Why the shell? I don't know, but there it is. But Ordinary people who don't want to spend, you know, almost four decades on top of a pillar, they also want to hear from God. Whoever and whatever they think God really is, most people, I think, want some connection with whatever is the divine. We want whatever miraculous divine force that we believe is behind the veil of all this to tell us something, something incredible, preferably. And throughout history, people have come along to insist that they have heard from the divine realm. English occultist Aleister Crowley, seen here trying to convince the sorting hat to put him in Slytherin House, (laughs) he visited Cairo, Egypt in 1904, where he claimed to have been visited by a supernatural entity. This being was said to provide Crowley with something that he called the Book of the Law, which in in turn became the basis for a religion called Thelema. From the late 60s until her death in 1984, Jane Roberts published a stack of New Age manuals that she claimed to have written at the behest of an entity speaking through a Ouija board that called itself Seth. (laughs) Seth, I'm sorry, but if I were the Ouija type and whatever was moving the planchette called itself Seth, I think that I'd probably think, you know, I'd say, well, thank you for your time. <laughs> I, you, must wanna, you might want to visit somebody else. And then I'd secretly ask the spirits for someone better, you know. <laughs> People, they want to hear from whatever they think might be out there, from God. But they come back with a word from Seth. And then when people claim to have heard from God, sometimes, you know this well enough, terrible things happen. In 312 AD, Emperor Constantine claimed to receive a vision from, and I quote, the Christian God, 
that he believed enabled him to emerge victorious from something called the Battle of Milvian Bridge, during which his forces slaughtered thousands of soldiers before the severed heads of his nemesis were paraded through the city streets in celebration. That's a big, ancient story. In 2003, a woman named Deanna Laney brutally murdered two of her young sons and critically injured her infant, telling police and later a courtroom that God commanded her to do so. She said that she hesitated before completing her evil work, but that God spoke through a bolt of lightning that bisected the night sky overhead, and she carried on. You can make a long list of nasty things to have unfolded across the long timeline of human history, allegedly prompted by God's voice. But then, this is the other side of that, often wonderful things have happened when people claim to have heard from God. In 1946, after 17 years as a teacher in Calcutta, India, Mother Mary Teresa said that Jesus asked her in a moment on a ride, actually, to abandon teaching and work instead in the slums of the city dealing directly with, and I quote, the poorest of the poor, the sick, the dying beggars, the street children. She said that Jesus said to her, come carry me to the poor. He told her, and I quote, come be my light. And then for years, she worked and cared for refugees and prostitutes, the mentally ill, sick and abandoned children, lepers, especially people with HIV AIDS. And her organization, Missionaries of Charity, continues to do this work across multiple countries today. Church history, ancient and modern, is absolutely overflowing with stories like Mother Teresa's, where after hearing the voice of God, the hungry were fed, the sick were doctored and healed, those cast out were welcomed in, orphanages, hospitals, food banks, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, international justice initiatives, incredibly huge things that significantly changed the entire world when someone said they heard from God. They're on a ride from one place to another and hear the voice of Jesus say, come carry me to the poor, and the world changes. Or sometimes it's much smaller. A life changes. A handful of lives change. In the early months of 2011, I took a walk in the forest behind my house in southeast Georgia to worship and pray. It was cold. It's a February afternoon, and I remember where I was standing and the way, you know, the leafless trees that had been emptied by winter punctuated the gray sky as God spoke. Not an audible voice, but a vivid, clear string of information, a statement really, suddenly deposited it into my mind as if from nowhere. He either told me or invited me to consider that I might one day become a Bible teacher or a pastor, and then that was that. Now, I should tell you, I had no aspirations to do either thing. I was not educated in Bible or theology. I didn't have any pastor friends or connections. No one had invited me to consider such a thing. I didn't even belong to a church at the time because I spent most of the year traveling around playing music. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, sure, I guess. And then I was, you know, kind of baffled by the prayer times that whatever you say, God. And I sort of shrugged, kept walking, went on with life as planned. What else was I going to do? That year, unrelated to those moments in prayer, my wife Abby and I moved to the Northwest and we showed up as total strangers one Sunday to the church where we, of course, had no idea at the time that I would eventually work as a pastor and that would plant Van City Church in 2016. I believe that in my life, 
I have heard from God many times before and after that cold morning in 2011, but that's not the whole story. I have also heard things that I thought at the time were God that eventually did not ring true at all, and I've been told things from other people who claim to speak for God to me that, again, turned out to be way off. And across nine years now of being a pastor, talking to people about what it means to hear from God, either from stage like this or in coffee shops or in my office or over you know, dinner at someone's house, I have known people who experience God's voice with remarkable, trustworthy clarity, humble people, people who feel like they've gotten it wrong as often as they've gotten it right. And I've sat with person after person, young and old, new to Jesus, or who had been Christian for years, and still aren't sure if they've ever heard God speak at all, or if they'd even know it if they heard it. There are more than one way to hear from God, and all of us can hear from God any and every day of our complicated and chaotic lives. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Tonight, we begin a new series dedicated to the incredible concept of hearing God. I have a handful of recommended reading, and I'll have more as we go, but I don't want to overload everybody with books, so we'll start here. This is kind of our landmark book for the series. Cam mentioned it a moment ago. It's called How to Hear God, A Simple Guide for Normal People by Pete Gregg. He said Grieg, but whose name is Grieg? I don't know. Ask him. Uh, What's that? Jan, did you say something? What have you been saying this whole time in your mind when you read his name? Grieg? Nah, y'all are wrong. <laughs> Don't worry about that. So it's a great book, straightforward, simple, down to earth. And I mean, I've, you know, by nature of my vocation, read a lot of books about how to hear from God. This is probably the best one I've come across yet on the topic. We have it back, all of these back there at our bookstore after the gathering. We sell them at cost. We don't profit at all. We just believe in books and you guys reading. So How to Hear God by Pete Gregg or Grieg, say it however you want. And then, of course, you got to have a book by Dallas Willard. This is also called Hearing God, Developing a Conversational Relationship with God, um, one of, I think, the better Dallas Willard works. And if you've read Dallas Willard, you already know whether or not you want to read that or if it's going to take you several years to get through it. Um, then we have a short little volume called Desiring God's Will by psychologist and uh, spiritual director David G. Benner. You can read it in, honestly, a couple of sittings. Super helpful, super straightforward. And then finally, for this week anyway, Shaped by the Word by Robert Mulholland Jr., which is about how to hear God in the Scriptures as you read and seeking God's voice in the Scriptures. We'll have, again, all of these back there at the book table for sale at cost after the gathering if you want to pick those up. Now, for the next few weeks, the plan is to learn how one hears from God, and then we'll practice together the new prayer court prayer cohort that Cam mentioned a few minutes ago is part of that process. If the question of hearing God's voice feels particularly pressing in this season of life, or if one way that you can serve our church in this season is in prayer, then please consider joining the prayer cohort. But either way, over the next few weeks, we are going to talk about how God speaks through the scriptures, or how God speaks through your brothers and sisters, or how God speaks through the still, small voice of the Spirit, or through worship, or through creation itself. But before we get there, Let's start at the beginning. Let's read from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world was, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now think about this. Imagine that you are a first century Jewish reader and you have been raised steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. You hear a book that opens with the phrase, in the beginning, and where does your mind go? Genesis, Genesis exactly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where your mind goes. John, the author of this first century biography of Jesus, is drawing the reader backward from the very beginning of his biography of Jesus to the very, very beginning of the story proper. And it's a story that goes on. You know the one, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And listen, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And on the story goes. God says something, and then it happens. What God says, or God's word, gives shape to reality. And then if you go on and read the scriptures, so much of the Bible's wisdom literature and, honestly, the teachings of Jesus bend over backward to assign unique power to words. With words, we have the power to unleash blessing and life or cursing and death. And the character of a person can be evident in the way that they speak. What you say demonstrates the kind of person you are inside. As Jesus put it, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And the same is true of God himself. We can learn so much about the character of God, the emotional experience of God, the desire of God, the goodness of God, just by reading the things he says. The Bible opens with God in this restorative act of artistry, speaking life and blessing into chaos and void for the sake of relational love. God wants sky and sea and birds and reptiles and flowers and hummingbirds and most of all, human beings designed for relationship and nearness and love with God himself and with one another. And when John, one of Jesus' followers, sits down to commit the story of Jesus of Nazareth to paper, he thinks, hmm, where to begin he goes all the way back to that story, to Genesis, in the beginning. But then there's a twist, was the word. And this time, God's creative speaking voice of creative love is Jesus. 
a man, a teacher, a rabbi. He goes on to write, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the word that my Bible translates as dwelling is elsewhere translated as tabernacle. Again, that's a word, tabernacle, that's suffused with deep significance for John's Jewish readers. In the story of Exodus, the tabernacle was God's kind of portable Eden slash heaven on earth, uh, a place where the goodness of God, the presence of God could be restored to his rebellious, sinful people. It was God's way of being with his people, even though the relationship had been compromised by sin. Being, he wanted to be close to them. He wanted to be amongst them. And the tabernacle was the way that he did that. So John is saying, just as God's strong, authoritative artistry and love rang out over watery chaos and brought forth life, just as God came down into the mire and muck of human sin in the tabernacle, so now Jesus of Nazareth is God's character and love and creative energy and presence amongst humanity. But we're Christians already, so we think, yeah, sure, we get that, whatever. Jesus is the big deal, we get it. We kind of went into this book assuming that that was already true. So it's easy to miss or to take for granted this profound reality for which the people of God had awaited with desperate longing for generations, for centuries. So give me just a few minutes to go all lectury on you with a bunch of Bible stuff. Stay with me. We're going somewhere, I promise. We'll be out of the woods shortly. Don't close John's gospel. We're coming back in a minute. Are you guys awake? You okay? Great. Oh, wow. Some woo-woo and a whistle and everything. Dang. All right. So we want to begin in Exodus 19. Look alive. Here we go. This is how the story goes. Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and always put their trust in you. But then things get wild. Watch this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And then the story goes on. In it, God comes to Israel in true creative spectacle. He's like that with the theatrics and everything. This is amazing. Fire, smoke, and thunder, and lightning, and a trumpet for some reason. I don't know. And it's apparently terrifying. And in the story, Israel won't even go up the mountain. Moses has to go by himself. And then not long after that story with the mountain, Mount Sinai, we read something. We read about something called the tabernacle. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle or tent and all its furnishing exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, it seems like a weird excerpt to kind of zero in on, but this is actually a huge deal in context. In the ancient world, gods were understood to be spatially located. So there was like a god of a certain mountain or god of the sea or a god of the forest, and ancient people went from place to place to seek their various gods who had various interests. And into that worldview is written Exodus, in which Yahweh, the one true creator God, is not relegated to one mountain or one river. He is the God over all things. But what this very big, omnipresent God wants is to go with his people as they wander around in a tent, apparently. He wants to go camping with Israel. Wherever they go, he wants to go with 
them. He doesn't want to have them wander around and seek him in one specific place or another. He wants to be amongst them and go with them. And so from here on, Exodus becomes this really detailed instruction manual for how to build the tent that Yahweh will inhabit. Really fascinating stuff. It showcases Yahweh's concern for artistry, God's unique aesthetic, his value for creative craftsmanship. Amazing stuff. But then we read in Exodus 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, no longer on Sinai. Now the cloud is kind of down in the camp with Israel. And listen, the glory of Yahweh, here meaning God's presence and beauty, fills the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now, after that, Fast forward a few hundred years. Israel is now long out of the desert, wandering around. They're living in a place called Canaan, where the capital city is Jerusalem. And then in 1 Kings 8, there's this new kind of tabernacle, but it's called the temple now, and it stays in one place as Israel is no longer wandering around in the desert. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple, not in the tabernacle anymore, again with the cloud. The cloud comes in and fills up the temple with God's presence, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled his temple. And Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So God's presence was on Sinai, the mountain. Then it came down and filled up the tabernacle, and now it has come and filled up the temple where they assume it will be forever. And this is kind of at a high point in Israel's story, big ceremony, opening the temple, Yahweh's glory inhabits it. You know, they cut the ribbon and everything. Really amazing stuff. Everyone's super excited. Thing is, as amazing as all of that was, this glory was still really only available, at least in the truest sense, to a select few. The story is only one male could enter the area that they called the Holy of Holies in the temple, and then he could only do it once a year on a day called Yom Kippur, and it was the whole thing. The high priest would wear this rope around his leg so that if the high priest died from the sheer magnitude of his experience in the Holy of Holies, the other guys could just, you know, pull the corpse out by the rope so that they don't have to go in and die too, you know, which would be a real drag. Mm, that's it, yep. Real Raiders of the Lost Ark level stuff, you know. Point is, this was a celebratory landmark in Israel's history. God's presence had come down to fill up the temple, but even so, as amazing as that was, what a huge game changer that was, it was still severely restricted, God's presence, that is. And even that, the restricted presence doesn't last. Israel, if you know the story, rebels again and again and again against Yahweh. They worship other gods. They commit acts of injustice. And after centuries of God's patience, Israel's sin just compounds on itself, and they're eventually invaded by Babylon, sent out of the land into exile. Even the temple is actually destroyed. A few hundred years later, Israel is long gone from their home. Jerusalem is a wasteland, and we read this story. The glory of Yahweh departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. 
There's a lot of weird stuff in there, but notice this. Each story that we read on our way here was about Yahweh's presence entering or arriving or filling somewhere, Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple. But this is a story about God's presence doing what? It's leaving, yeah. It's a haunting scene. And from this point on, the story in the story, God's presence is gone. It's not in the temple, obviously. It's not in Jerusalem at all. It's not up on the mountain. It's not in a tent. It's gone. But in the story, as time marches on, a prophet called Ezekiel and some of the other prophets begin to look forward to a day in the future when they believed God's Spirit would come back. Ezekiel experiences this incredible vision. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire scriptures. And it's this vision of like this dry valley littered with sun-bleached skeletons. It's a metaphor for the desolation of Israel. And he said to me, son of man, here this is kind of uh, God referring to the prophet as a human being, a son of man. These bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put, listen, my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and I have done it declares the Lord. And the story goes on. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, Yahweh, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. In this vivid picture, the prophet learns not only that Israel will one day return to the land from which they've been exiled, but better still, one day the presence of God himself will return to Israel, but there's more. When God returns to Israel, he is going to put his very spirit in his people. At this point in the story, that is absolutely unheard of. God's spirit throughout the scriptures up to this point showed up like on a noteworthy king or on a prophet from time to time, but that was rare and unique and sort of for a limited time only. Maybe the spirit or God's presence would show up in a cloud or on a mountain or in the holy of holies, sure. But here, Ezekiel sees a day in the future when God's spirit would be in his people and amongst them forever. Open access, unrestricted, God with his people, all his people. Now, we're almost there. Stay with me. Between the exile and Jesus of Nazareth, you've got about 400 years or so. In that stretch, the temple was destroyed and then rebuilt, and there is zero indication that God's presence has returned to the temple at all. So it's still this somber, ongoing picture for hundreds of years. The Jewish people are back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt, but it is, in essence, empty, void of God's presence. God isn't there. Thus, the people of Israel are still waiting for Ezekiel's vision to come to fulfillment, and then it does, but not the way anyone was expecting. Now, one more time, look down at John chapter 1, and let's read verse 14 again with all of that backstory and context in mind. This is what would come to mind for John's readers when they read this. The Word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. The word became flesh 
and tabernacled amongst us. And verse 14 goes on, we have seen his glory, language from Exodus, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is deliberately evoking the same imagery, the creative voice of God in the beginning, the awe-inspiring glory of God, the cloud on the mountain, the glory in the camp and in the temple. Only now, all of that same voice and power and glory is in Jesus of Nazareth. C.S. Lewis once famously said, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. Now, turn a few pages to the right to John chapter 10, and let's read beginning with verse 1. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, that's Jesus' way of referring to himself, but climbs in some other way, trying to access God apart from Jesus, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and listen, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. To learn the words of Jesus is to learn the voice of God. To read the words of Jesus in the scriptures is to hear the voice of God. Many, many people want to hear from God. We'd love it if he could be specific that's helpful and pretty clear. Something poetic would be nice. Not too abstract, of course. Something that would make for an inspiring story, that community makes you sound extra Christian. But also something that kind of resolves our current anxieties, you know. I know these are the kinds of words that I crave from God, but all of them are the expectations of a passive party, a listener only. In his book, How to Hear God, Pete Gregg writes, Hearing God is about moving from talking about God, at God, or even to God, to talking with God. I am all ears when God is prepared to say what I would like to hear. Otherwise, I will do the talking. Thank you very much. I have a lot on my mind, and believe me, this guy gets an earful every morning. <laughs> Last week, I had to correct my son. It's something that happens when you're the parent of children, and I, I don't even remember what it was about, but I was, I think, you know, it was, I wasn't heated up or upset or anything. I was just like, okay, well, you, you know, you can't really do that. I was trying to explain something he had done wasn't that great, and he got really frustrated with the correction and said, I don't want to hear this anymore. I said, stop acting like a millennial. <laughs> he didn't know what that meant. <laughs> so many of us are, are, myself absolutely included, so many of us are nigh desperate for a supernatural word from God, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. For more than seven years now, we have made room every single Sunday gathering to listen to God's Spirit. Obviously, we are big on the concept. 
But, please listen, God has spoken and is speaking in and through his son Jesus on the pages of the book you are holding in your hands right now. The author of Hebrews, from which Taylor read earlier, puts it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many a times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. There's that language from Exodus again. And listen to this. He is the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Something that has occurred to me over my years of following Jesus around other people following Jesus is that the people I know who immerse themselves in the scriptures, and honestly, usually they're a lot older than I am. They've been around the scriptures for a long time, dedicated to them, and especially to reading the gospels and the words of Jesus. These people talk about their time of reading and meditating on these writings the exact same way they talk about incredible feats of prophecy. They will turn over a phrase, just a phrase, in their hearts and minds again and again for days and weeks and come to me and say, oh man, God has spoke to me and this is what he's shown me and this is, I'm expecting some kind of incredible, vivid Holy Spirit picture and they just quote a line from a gospel. They relay what God is speaking to them and over their lives through these ancient words committed to papyrus centuries ago. For them, the stories of Jesus become like a movie that one watches again and again and again, finding new things to love, noticing new things with each subsequent viewing, longing to bring other people to the next viewing to share what they're learning and seeing and share in the experience of this thing they love so much. Yes, God's Spirit does speak by direct deposit into our minds and hearts and imaginations. We believe that and we will talk about that at length and in depth as this series goes on. Yes, there is prophecy, hearing from God and communicating what you think God is saying. There are words of knowledge. When you get insight into something you couldn't possibly know otherwise from the Spirit, there are words of wisdom and encouragement, incredible insight given to individuals to speak into the lives of other people on behalf of God, imperfect conduits of His voice, though they may be. We will talk about all of that but the only way, listen to me on this, the only way that we know these incredible words that we experience are reliable at all is by testing them against the written word. The best, infallible, most accessible way that we hear God's voice is in the Bible, and especially in the words of Jesus. It's where we learn the story of God's Spirit being poured out in the first place. It's where we learn the truth with which we test all other claims, the rubric by which we assess reality itself, and it's right there in your hand waiting. All those years ago, in the woods, when I heard the voice of God, it would be another six years before what he said began to come to fruition in my life. And it would be another few years after that before I felt like I was making any sense of it at all, really. And in the time between, 
God continued to speak the way that he did in the woods that morning, meaning here and there I would feel as if God was giving me kind of an image or a direction or a scripture that he'd kind of directly deposited into my mind's eye. Mostly, though, the way he spoke day in and day out was in the mornings as I opened the Gospels again and again and again. Mostly, the way that he led me through that time and put me in the places that I believe he wanted me to be was in me putting the words of Jesus to memory. Mostly, he talked to me by talking to people who aren't me some 2,000 years ago somewhere else in the world. But as he talked this way, I learned more and more to recognize his voice because I had read it again and again and again. And when other voices spoke that did not align with what I had found in these sacred pages, I learned to recognize that too. To hear the shepherd and know his voice. To follow him wherever he goes and to recognize his voices, recognize voices that aren't the shepherd and to reject them. More and more, the sound of his voice, as it were, took shape in my heart and mind, though there was no sound at all. The voice of God was always at arm's length. In the weeks ahead, as we make space for all the ways that we hear God, this is the foundation. This is the rubric by which all other hearings are assessed and understood. And through it, God never stops speaking. And we can hear from God every day at any moment, and we keep listening until we know his voice more and more and more. And yes, that takes time, but in the end, it is worth every second we have. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to come and speak and lead us to the truth. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.